welcome to Cutthroat Queens Podcast, your home for all the greatest hits from the 80s, 90s, and today. We are here to take an open and honest look at all things indie horror. My name is Brett Mitchell-Kent, and I'm joined by the crust that forms on your toothpaste when you leave the cap off, Chelsea Pumpkins! Minty fresh, baby! Minty fresh, unless that's not your thing. They're making weird toothpastes now that have, like, like watermelon flavored and stuff. I haven't taken the plunge. See it on TikTok. Wow. I, I don't know that I can do it. I was, I remember, like, going to the dentist as a kid, and they'd give you the cool flavors, and then... You go one day, they decide you're too old, and you don't get a choice anymore, and you just get mint. See, that right there is what's wrong with the world. That's ageism, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's- Take it's it up with the Better Business Bureau. Yeah. We should probably create, like, a Facebook group dedicated to dentists <laughs> and then ruin their lives. Maybe it's that, like, one out of ten dentists left that is pro-watermelon yeah. toothpaste flavor. We we'll need find to, those ones. We need to find those ones and create a class action lawsuit. They're all millennials. So I'm going to sue them for psychological damage. Yeah, I'll do the same. We, we can make it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Chelsea, um, <laughs> what are we here for? <laughs> we are here this month and next month as well. We're taking on a little bit of a different format. Um. We wanted to do, it started off as novel features, but then it kind of also morphed into like novellas too. But we are doing some one-on-one interviews, um, shorter interviews, um, a series of four each month. Um, And we're even bringing on some guest interviewers that were previous guests on our show. So um, listeners, check it out. See what you think. I don't think it's here to stay forever, but might do it once in a while. Um, I know we all had fun um, with our interviews, but this month we have, I got to sit down with J.A.W. McCarthy, also known as Jaw or Jen. Jaw and I spoke, talked about her novella Sleep Alone, which came out earlier this year. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You loved yeah. that one. I loved it. Yeah. So it was, it's a little bit of a gushy interview. <laughs> My um, too. Yes. Oh, tell, you can talk about who you talked to. Oh, yeah. So I talked to Caleb Stevens and I'd read his his collection previously but i got to read feeders for this and i loved it it was very tailor-made to me it was about bugs which is not a spoiler because there's a bug on the there's bug right on the cover yes so uh it it was great it was a little bit of a gushy interview but all mine are and then um we brought on ray knowles so ray who is as the interviewer yeah yeah uh, we talk about her all the time i'm a huge fan and she was a great guest. So she came on and she interviewed Linz McLeod. And then Elton got to sit down with NJ Galagos um, about her latest book as well. So I'm really excited to hear that yes. one. And said, oh, <laughs> I also learned that I believe NJ is a Bravo Real Housewives fan. So we may need, we may need um, to have like a bonus episode. Bring Jolie back. But yeah, bring Jolie, NJ on and, and have they, some real housewives. They've both got upcoming things coming out, so yeah, uh, we might have to make this happen. But Elton, they were like going back and forth on Twitter about <laughs> their interview, and I was like, well, "Come on, why didn't you do this it. with me, Caleb?" <laughs> so it it's going to be a lot of fun so go ahead and stay tuned and the first up is you will hear from chelsea and jaw 
Jen McCarthy, um, also known as J.A.W. Um, J.A.W. McCarthy is the Shirley Jackson Award-nominated author of Sometimes We're Cruel and Other Stories and Sleep Alone. Her short fiction has appeared in numerous publications, including Vestarian, Pseudopod, Lamplight, Apparition Lit, Tales to Terrify, and the Best and the Best Horror of the Year, Volume 13. She is Thai American and lives with her husband and assistant cats in the Pacific Northwest. You can call her Jen on Twitter at J-A-W McCarthy and find out more at www.jawmccarthy.com. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to talk about Sleep Alone. Oh, good. I love talking (laughs) about it. (laughs) Yes. Um, I read this book, I don't know, months ago. Maybe maybe I bought it at StokerCon. Um, but it totally brought me out of a reading slump. So it like has an extra, a little extra special place in my heart. Um, I was totally enthralled and addicted to it. So I'm excited to have you on today. No, thank you. I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, we want, I want to talk a little bit kind of just like your process in general, writer to writer. Um, and I guess I'll just start with why do you write? What makes you tick as a writer? You know, I think like most writers I've always written since childhood. My mom um, was always very creative and she loved to read to me and she would make up stories as well. And then she would also draw live, like illustrate while she told me stories. So I think it's just in my blood, you know, it was the way I was raised. My parents never limited my reading, you know, and I just devoured books as a child. I wish I could keep up the same pace I did as a kid as an adult because I read yes. a lot and I don't know it's just uh I love visual art too but I think writing is the thing that I definitely circled back to as an adult it it's been the thing that just I could not shake that you know this obsession to the point where it's like okay I have to do something with it the pen has got to hit the page <laughs> yeah <laughs> so do you dabble yourself in like the visual arts too do you draw or anything like that not in a really long time. I um, actually have an art degree. And yeah, so I went to school for art. And then of course, what happens, I lose interest in visual art and decide to start <laughs> writing again. Listen, it, I feel like you're hard pressed to find anybody who like, uses their degree. So we go to school for other skills is my, is my theory. (laughs) And I think, you know, at the age, most people go to college, like right out of high school. Are you really, are most kids really there where they know exactly what they want to do with the rest of their lives at that age? I'm with you. That's a lot to ask of a kid. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Some do, but you know, I mean, you know, if you asked me now what I want to do with the rest of my life, it would have been a very different answer from when I was 18. Absolutely. And then you factor in like all the life situations that you just, you're like, oh, things are expensive and like you need yeah. money to live. <laughs> exactly. That's a whole other factor. <laughs> yeah. Being really, really broke at like 20 was romantic and fun, you know, not so much at this age. <laughs> um, Have you always written horror or like in the spooky genre? 
Yeah, I have. Even um, as a little kid, I was doing that. I, I love and that. I can't even tell you, you know, it must be, you know, what I was reading as a kid, because I can't think of any other reason why it was just always the thing I wrote naturally. You said your mom, like, kind of probably nurtured your, like, storytelling. Was she kind of into, like, creepy stuff, too? Or was that all you? Not really. I mean, she did read. Um, she likes true crime a lot. And she did read Stephen King and stuff like that. But um, she reads pretty wide, widely, like she really likes romance. So it wasn't that she pushed me in a direction or anything. I really, I, you know, I, I can think about books I read as a kid that probably influenced me. But as far as I can remember, my very earliest stories as a child were still horror. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I found this, like, I was helping my dad move a few years ago. And I found like this, like, folder of my old crap from being a kid and there was like me writing like spooky stories and I was like oh look I was always doing this awesome. yes <laughs> I love that were they good or were you just like oh no oh, horrible no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean there were like first grade stories so yeah like, <laughs> something was scary ah um but I guess we're just all creeps at a young age I'm, I'm glad we've all found each other now <laughs> I know right <laughs> It's a good community to be a part of. It is. Um, it is. <laughs> do you have, um, I'm sure you do, people who, people or works that inspire you today as an adult, even if you can't really remember the ones from your childhood? Yeah. Um, I have a few contemporary authors that really, uh, really inspired me. What, what happened was I gave up art and writing for a really long time. And then I came back to it at a later age. And I first came back to deciding that I wanted to write horror as well as short fiction. So I started just kind of, I joined, you know, the online communities and I noticed like Gwendolyn Keist was a big name going around. You know, everyone was talking about her collection that had just come out at that time. So I grabbed that and that book, wow, I felt like it opened a door. I was just so, um, I'd never read anything like her voice before. And that was just like, you know, one of those things where I was like, oh God, you know, I think like this. I feel like, okay, there's another person in the world who might think the way I do about writing, which oh, was really that. cool and encouraging, you know, to see her be successful and be so good at it. It was kind of a path I could see for myself as well. Oh, that's awesome. And yeah, you got to be I, on I, her panel at StokerCon. Yeah. <laughs> that's so special. What a cool, like full, full circle moment. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. It was the first time we ever met in person and she signed my copy of Reluctant Immortals and everything. It was a very Aww. big moment for me. <laughs> That's so cool. I haven't read her collection yet, but um, I really loved The Rust Maidens, I felt. Oh, um, I love that book. It was so it was so beautiful and moving, but like still modern. I don't know. It's just, like had this cool yeah. gothic feel, but like also a little grungy and or gritty whatever the Midwest equivalent of a steel city <laughs> of the word grunge is. is how yeah, that felt. <laughs> it, it's so fully seated in its time and place. It's mm. just so immersive in that you can feel it, which I love about that book. That's definitely a favorite book. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I think definitely her, um, I'm really inspired, like a lot of people by Shirley Jackson. And my favorite Shirley Jackson book is We've Always Lived in the Castle, because that was to me, one of the first times I read an unreliable narrator 
Ooh, what who, a good one too. <laughs> oh, I know. And you know, like in the beginning of the book where she talks about, I don't remember what she calls them, but she does things for protection. She places objects in different. I'm just like, okay, like I think like that too. So this is That's really awesome. amazing to read this. <laughs> and it's she, just so, it, it's just a beautifully done, you know, story from an unreliable narrator that just unfolds just absolutely gracefully to a conclusion that there was no other. Yes. There's a few characters out, a few characters as memorable as Mary Cat, that is for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and it's such a wonderful book. Yeah, that's a, definitely a favorite. Um, I have to mention too, Michael Weehunt's one of my favorites. I read Greener Pastures early on when I was coming back to writing. And that one is, his work for me is very much um, intentional and it makes me want to be much more intentional with my work and really, you know, think about the weight of words and the weight of silence and spaces and what's not said. So I'm a huge fan of his. And then I made a list here. I love it. What's that? Like, just keep another it coming. Absolute, <laughs> another, um, the last absolute favorite uh, that I want to mention right now, whose contemporary is Joe Koch. I love his prose. His prose is like no other, absolutely intoxicating. Like you don't just read his work, you go on a journey. Yes, I can totally see that. <laughs> yeah, his pro- yeah, his prose is definitely super unique. Um, I got to read his piece in Aseptic and Faintly Sadistic. And it was very um punch you in the gut kind of a kind of a journey, like you said. <laughs> I haven't read that one yet. I gotta pick that up. But that anthology was- like blew my mind, but <laughs> oh, I've been hearing really such good. good things about it. It sounds really cool. I mean, there's so many great people working right now. I I mean, I could go on and on. I just was like, okay, make a very short list. <laughs> you know, don't like list 30 people. But I mean, I got to tell you, I am so happy to be a part of this horror community with so many talented people. It's, I just feel like we're in this golden age and the voices out there are amazing and inspiring. There's so, and everybody does different things. It's just a yes. really exciting time I think for us as writers and like for all the bad that social media can do like one I think one awesome thing is it's really like opened the door to be exposed to everybody and to find each other because it didn't used to be that you used to be like kind of relegated to whatever Barnes Noble had and yes you know they're just carrying the big five and so now I just love being able to find new things and new people in the in our little community (laughs) exactly you know I was very phobic of social media I didn't have any social media until I think like 2018 yeah because I I had to to be a writer (laughs) yes yes that's so true I know and I was like I don't want to have anything to do with this but you know what I wouldn't know 90% of these authors without it and I wouldn't know how strong and exciting the indie horror community is too double-edged sword but I like I like to think of the good of it and it and meet yeah. <laughs> people that I found there. So that's very cool. Um, also, I hope you know, like you are also an inspiration to a lot of writers now too, now that your work <laughs> is out there. Um, I was even talking to uh, my friend, writer, Rachel Searcy, ahead of um, sending you some of these questions. Cause I know she loved sleep alone too. And I was like, I get to talk to Jen about sleep alone. And she was like, Oh my God, just ask her if she wants to adopt me. And I was like, uh-huh. All right. <laughs> oh my God. I met her at Stoker con. She's absolutely lovely. She is so lovely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's just this really cool, like to me, I learned about you and Gwendolyn Keist at the same time. So it's like, so funny to like hear about people's, um, I don't know, like the trickle effect of inspiration and, 
spark and all of that. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, do you, did you have specific inspiration when you wrote sleep alone or do you want to actually start by giving like a little, tell the listeners what sleep alone is about? Okay. Sleep alone (laughs) is about a literal band of succubi who are just, they live on the road constantly because they feed constantly. So I, I changed the, um, I decided to just do my own thing with the succubi lore and make it that, um, both, Men and women can be succubi. It's not just women. And they they do feed through sexual acts, but they feed on um, energy, skills, memories, things like that. So they're basically this band of succubi and their merch girl, Ronnie, who is the one who turned them. And she's basically the mother of the band. And it's just this... We meet them six years in, they're exhausted. They live in, you know, grimy hotels. They sleep in their van. They're, you know, playing kind of mid-level shows just to survive until they have to move on to the next town when they accidentally go too far and kill people. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I like, um, I love reading like memoirs of bands, like, um, and it's not, I've never been in a band myself, but I thought you just captured that scene and the, that feeling and that tiredness and that transient, so transient, transients, whatever that word is. <laughs> so, well, like it just felt very realistic. Um, and then putting succubi in that, in that space was such a cool twist on that. Um, was there anything specific that inspired you when you started the story? You know, I can't remember. I was like three quarters of the way through another novella, which I still have not finished. And this just popped in my head and I ran with it. I couldn't stop myself. It was just one of those. It took me a while to do, but it was still like, I can't let this one go. It's turning into something. But I think, you know, like I definitely chose Succubi because I feel like they're a lesser known, you know, mythical kind of quote unquote monster. So I thought it'd be fun to do something with them and I kind of like the idea of it, you know, the idea of the energy, um, you know, energy eating as well as memory eating came as I was writing and I liked it. So I went with it. Yeah, I haven't. I think this might have been like the first really big piece, like whether a book or a movie or whatever about succubi that I had ever read. So I had like heard of the creature or monster or whatever, but never like dug deep so your lore is now my lore oh that's <laughs> so now, cool <laughs> so this is my my starting point my baseline suck you by story there you go um, that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> but I loved like and the way you wrote them like consuming energy and memories was so interesting too and like how they could kind of pick and choose like the good ones and the bad ones and like and change the people's like lived experiences after a feeding I just thought it was such a cool take so good job thanks (laughs) I mean I'm a I'm not a plotter I'm definitely a pantser so these things come to me as I write and I think there was just a certain point where I was like oh wouldn't it be convenient if they could eat their memories and then that way they wouldn't have to kill them (laughs) yes that way they don't that way they can't remember them love it um so was there anything that like specifically attracted you about succubi that you knew you wanted to use? Not really. I, I think for me, it definitely started with Ronnie and I wanted it to be about the merch girl and how, you know, how kind of lonely and in the shadows that is in a lot of ways. And 
I just, I don't know. I felt like, okay, well, how do I give her power? And then, oh, she's a succubi. Cool. She's some kind of creature. Let's do that. And then, okay, this also gives her power over the band she made. You know, to me, it was this dynamic of, because I've I've worked merch for bands and it's kind of just, I wanted to put my own experience into some kind of the sexism that I've faced doing that, you know, where, you know, sexism and ageism where you go and it's like you work with the band and then you have bouncers be like, no, honey, no, sweetheart. The groupies wait over here, you know, stuff like that. Like, yeah. you know, I had experiences when I was setting up a merch table and the promoter came over and told me I had to leave and I couldn't sit there because that area was for the bands. You know? Oh, my God. And these are judgments people made yes. that men made looking at me. Yeah. You know, like Absolutely. whatever, I didn't look cool enough. I didn't look young enough, you know, whatever it was, you know, they decided I did not look like I belonged there. Yeah. And I kind of, I was really, I wanted to write about that from the point of view of a merch girl, but then also do the thing where she has secret power, you know, yes. that most people don't know about. Yeah. That came through really well. Um, and that sexism, I feel like is something a lot of women can relate to in many different fields. Um, oh yeah. Just that sense of you must not, you must be in the wrong place, honey. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You must be confused. <laughs> Are you lost? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's nice that you got to put all of your, uh, your revenge, <laughs> your feelings into Ronnie as a character. Yeah. <laughs> Were you working merch in the Pacific Northwest? Cause I know that's like a big rock scene in general. Yeah, yeah I did. Very cool. Um, I just loved, like, there were so many really cool themes that you worked in, whether intentionally or whether that's just how I wrote it. But um, just the overall feeling of, like, insatiability and the, like, unfulfillment so many of your characters felt was just so powerful. And it was, like, it created this interesting dynamic of both, like, feeling lonely with them, but also feeling, like, maybe seen by them. And it, I don't know, I just, like it created this really interesting relationship as a reader, I thought. So oh, that's actually a really interesting way that you put it, you know, because they're two opposite things. So it's just, and I, I think I went through this period and I noticed it was coming up a lot in my work as well as in my nonfiction work about hunger. And like mm-hmm. you said, insatiability and wondering why have I been so hungry my whole life? Why am I hungry for these things? And I don't know, maybe I've been through my hungry period now. <laughs> hopefully you feel full yeah that's all we want (laughs) but I think you know if you're any kind of artist creative person writer I think hunger is a driving force oh absolutely yeah hungry to express yourself or you're just hungry and you're searching through your work to find the thing that'll satisfy you yeah especially that like that feeling when you have you have that story in you and you like cannot get it on the page the way you feel it and that it's definitely or um, I've met so many writers who will set goals and they'll achieve them and then all of a sudden they're not enough and it's like you did this really awesome thing you made the book like what do you mean it's not enough and they're like oh well that one doesn't count or like oh well that's you know that was just a thing I did and I feel like creators are really quick to discount their achievements because they like keep moving that bar higher and higher and not giving yeah. them, not stopping to give themselves credit. 
No, you're absolutely right. Cause I think part of that hunger drives us to when we reach a goal, the next goal is going to be higher and higher and higher. So you're always chasing something. There's never a point where you're done or you're yeah. satisfied. What, a, what an uplifting. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Come be a writer, everyone. It's loads of fun. We, we feel so much fulfillment and happiness. Yeah. <laughs> Our self-esteem is through the roof. <laughs> Can't you feel it? <laughs> um, I loved too how how Ronnie found the band. Like her cha- her turning them was like a little bit rooted in in her fandom of them. Like she like loved what they did, and she's like, well, if I can keep them around, like it was both this like. I don't know, I guess giving them immortality can seem selfless, perhaps, um, to some, but like <laughs> she wanted to keep them for herself, but also like for company and family. Um, and just that kind of idea of like trying to to change people, but it, it failed in the end. And um that felt like very realistic and applicable to a lot of different scenarios. I think, uh, yeah, definitely in relationships, I think most of us do do that, you know, even when we try not to, you try to change somebody and it's, uh, I mean, I'm glad you brought up selfish because even though Ronnie is, you know, the hero of the book in a way, to me, her decision-making was selfish. I I deeply understand it because I feel that way myself during different Mm -hmm. times in my life, but I mean, yeah she that was selfish that was awful she didn't think ahead and none of it really clicks in her head until she meets Helene who is another succubi who comes another succubus who comes into the story and kind of throws the whole dynamic with the band you know for a loop and changes everything and it's uh it's it's just one of those things where as much as I love Ronnie and she's a really, she's probably the closest character to my heart I've ever written. She does terrible things because she's selfish. She's lonely. She's frustrated. She was raised terribly. She's bringing in generational trauma, you know, to her relationships. (laughs) She's not making things better. She's making things worse, even when she thinks she's making things better. Yeah. And it's like, it becomes sad because like, it is this like desire to have family and, or to Mm -hmm. have, you know, just like something lasting, and something that feels like home, but she did it the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's the thing, like, too, the whole idea of home, you know, of trying, everybody wants to make a home, you know, no yeah. matter where that is or who it's with you, your life is kind of in a way built around making a sort of home, whether it's with another person, people, or a place. Yeah. And then, you know, what do you do if that's, if you just don't find that? Mm-hmm. And it seems like Helene was brought onto the scene to serve that but I don't know maybe your maybe your opinion or your goal of that was different um but I thought it was really cool that she got to meet somebody much more like her and that gave her kind of this wisdom but also provided the companionship um that like instant comfort that they felt when they like discovered each other and like understanding I thought was very powerful yeah thank you I uh, I, I wanted it to do that for sure I definitely wanted Helene to kind of be um, Ronnie's home but at the same time you know even though they're in a t- I mean this the story takes place over the span of a week everything is very sudden and quick and dirty and you know there's this whole thing when you first think oh this might actually be my person and you want to tell them everything whether you should or not and then um, 
I, I, you know, I, I hope it comes through too that you can kind of see the evolution of their relationship in this brief period of time and realize that Helene is, doesn't have all the answers either. And she's, you know, just as messed up as Ronnie in a lot of ways and is feeling her way through life, trying to figure it out as well. Yeah. They both, they both come to that same wrong way to build your life conclusion and learn yeah. from it. <laughs> um, but yeah, at what point, like, did you, I know you said you're a pantser, so maybe this is just an offensive question, but did you know ahead of time how you were going to kind of take the band out of the story or did that evolve as you were writing it? Um, it evolved about like halfway through. I actually had a completely different ending in mind. And I was writing towards that ending. And then I just realized this isn't honest to these characters, oh. you know, because as you write, as you know, you get to know your characters as you're writing them. You know, nobody has a perfectly laid out. This is this character's entire life and nothing will change, you know, in the course of the story, yeah. you, you're getting to know them, you know. So once I got to know my characters, the original ending I had in mind was just wrong. And I decided to do something that I felt was more honest to what Ronnie would do yeah it was sad and it I don't know it was interesting because I felt both sad to lose them sad that it was so devastating and like painful for them and also for Ronnie but like it, it also was kind of like a little bit of closure like yeah Ronnie you messed up and these are the consequences and yeah I don't know yeah I, don't I want to see her hurt because I like her too but yeah <laughs> she did screw up <laughs> Well, I mean, it's, I mean, to me, I've been asked this before and it's like, would she ever do it again? And I'm like, no, you know, I think she definitely by the end of the story has learned her lesson and would never, you know, make a band of succubi ever again. Do you think you'll bring Ronnie back in anything? I'm not planning to, but you know, I know her really well and I love her. So I kind of, and I'm, I totally love Helene. She's one of, you know, I kind of put in a lot of, uh, some fantasy in a way to her, you know, so it's very much like their romance was kind of my romance as I was learning about and writing these characters. So I, I think I would like to do something with them again. I just don't have any plans to, or any ideas yeah. right now. No, they're awesome characters. And the, whoever did your cover art, it's like perfectly captured in my head. Yeah. <laughs> characters. Oh, uh, Evangeline Gallagher is incredible. I was so excited that they were willing to do this cover because literally as I was writing, I was like, there's only one person I want to do this cover. And so I have to absolutely thank Off Limits Press for making that happen and Evangeline for making that happen. No, it's like so perfect. It's just like kind of retro. Oh, I love it. I'm just looking at it right now. <laughs> um, yeah. Is there anything else that you want to talk about Sleep Alone? Um I know this went quick. It's supposed to be a quick interview, but um, I didn't want to like leave out anything major that you were wanted to get off your chest or anything. Um, no, I I think though, um, I you know it's one of my favorite things I've ever written. I tried to be very honest with it, and I hope that comes through. And it's a love story too. It's not just gore and succubi. I mean, I consider it a love story. It's about found family love as well as romantic yeah. love it's just gory and gross and sad but it's still a love story under that yes I think it definitely comes through and the whole book felt super authentic um 
Yeah, I just love all of the characters are great. I know we didn't talk too much about like the band themselves as individuals, but you did make them all like very distinct and have motivations and have different like, you know, like crises of conscience and all of that. Um, yeah, I I think anybody who picks this up, like, how could you not fall in love with any of these characters? It's just such a great story. Well, thank you so much. I love hearing that. Um, where can people buy it? Where's the best place for them to buy it? I'm sure they can buy it in a lot of places. Um, I am a fan. It's pretty widely available online. I like bookshop.org. It's a good one. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. Um, some bookstores, some physical bookstores have it, which is really exciting. I love it when people post pictures of that. I save them. I just, I'm so proud of that. It's so exciting to know my books in a bookstore and I know it's in some libraries, which is really cool. That is awesome. Oh, congratulations. And you just hit the six month mark. Did I see that on Twitter? Yay. Congratulations. Thank you. I hope the next six months is even better. Um, Thank you. (laughs) And that you see lots of, lots of attention for it because I think it deserves it. Um, Is there any other projects that you have coming up or, you know, publications that you wanted to share with our listeners? Yeah. um, I have some some I can't announce yet, but I have some new short fiction that'll be coming up in um, some upcoming anthologies. There's Open All Night from um, Atomic Carnival and then from Beyond Press's Escalators to Hell, which is a mall oh, nice. anthology. <laughs> I went in there. I'm going to have a story in Death in the Mouth. Oh, um, yes, that's right. Um, I got to starter. <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, what a great project. Yeah, and I just uh, had um, a story come out that was just published in the Canterbury Nightmares from Crossroad Press. So that's a really, there's some really amazing people in that one. I mean, there's amazing people in all of them. Like I said, this <laughs> right now, we live in a very rich time for horror fiction, I think. So, you know, oh, yeah. there's there's incredible people and in everything out there. You can't go wrong. But I also wanted to mention, I have another um, long piece of fiction, a novelette in Split Scream, Volume 3. So Patrick Barb has the first story in it, and then I have the second story in it. And um, I I love the series. Dreadstone did the first three, and then Tenebrous Press is doing four and beyond now. And I think it's a really cool series, period. Just pick up any of them. It's so cool. I love the idea of like a split seven, but it's novelettes. Yes, I definitely want to check that out. I was going to ask if, um, I meant to ask if Sleep Alone was the longest thing that you have out there right now. I know you have a collection, but the longest in like one piece. Cool. Yeah. The longest single story is, uh, yeah. Sleep alone. It's funny because I never thought I could write, um, short. I always wrote like as a, as a child, I wrote novels, like hefty, gigantic novels. Couldn't write short (laughs) fiction, tried it, you know, couldn't do it. Just, I had too much to say. So of course now it's like, I'm addicted to short fiction. (laughs) So I would love to ask you for advice on how to write a novella because that's, I'm, I'm struggling going from short to long, but maybe I should ask you for advice for our listeners, how you were able to make the jump from long to short. That was really hard for me. A a big thing is editing and having, you know, beta readers look at it and say like, you don't need this. You know, I'm, I'm someone who's very, I can get very precious about my work and be like, no that line is so beautiful. I'm very proud of it. And it has to stay, you know, and I need someone else to tell me it has nothing to do with the story. You clip it out and you save it for another yep, story. Go put, it in a, go put it in a side document. <laughs> exactly. And that is something I've learned over the years to become a lot more relentless with my editing. But I mean, 
I think I wrote really long forever because I'm in love with describing things. You know, I could spend six pages telling you about, you know, I don't know the sky or whatever, you know, and yeah. I, and it's just like, okay, this is my indulgence. People yeah. don't want to read this. You know, <laughs> I like it, but people don't want to read this and it is not serving the story. So I think that was how I did it. I had very, very smart, kind people sit me down and go, this isn't working and here's why, you know, and then I, I was able to apply that over time to my own work and it, you know, people still need to tell me that now. Yeah. Well, but, good for you. It's not yeah. easy to hear either. And it's not easy to make that change. So good yeah, it, it's tough, you know, and you got to, but you got to have a thick skin. Like everybody says, if you're going to be a writer, you have to have a thick skin. Yeah. And that's easier said than done. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that's really good advice though. Thank you. Um, and then we are asking everybody in this episode one silly question, which is, if you wrote your memoir today, what would be the title of it? Oh, no. Um, something along the lines of, I am very tired, but I can't stop. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. And um, I hope everybody checks out Sleep Alone. It's been one of my favorite things that I read this year. And I definitely know I'm not alone there. I'm not sleeping alone on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you for having me on. I'm here with Caleb Stevens. Caleb Stevens is a dark fiction author writing from somewhere deep in the Colorado mountains. His short stories have appeared in multiple publications and podcasts, including the No Sleep podcast, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, Metastellar, Tales to Terrify, and more. His dark fiction collection, If Only a Heart and Other Tales of Terror, is available through Salt Heart Press and includes the short story, The Wallpaper Man, which was adapted to film by Falconer Film and Media in 2022. He is also the author of Feeders, a speculative horror thriller available through Timber Ghost Press, and The Girls in the Cabin, a psychological thriller available through Joffe Books. You can join his mailing list and learn more at www.calebstevensauthor.com, as well as follow him on Instagram at Caleb Stevens Author. Hello, Caleb. You got it there. That's kind of a yeah. mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually, I'm going to put this on record for the listeners. This is the first time that I've ever read a bio without having to restart. So I deserve a round of applause. Did I pronounce Joffe books correctly? Yeah, you, it's it's actually like coffee, Joffe. I, I should have mentioned that too. So you did it. It was perfect. <laughs> All right, wonderful. So we are here to discuss mostly uh, your upcoming novel, Feeders. When does that release? It's October 10th. October 10th. Perfect. Um, and then I've also read your short stories, If Only a Heart and Other Tales of Terror. That was the first thing that I, that was when I was introduced to you. I love that one as well. Um, Thank you. So what is it that led you to becoming a horror writer or a writer in general? So um, like a lot of authors, I just grew up with a big love for reading. Um, I can thank my parents for that. I just got into reading at a really young age. And I was one of those kids who, you know, stay up late at night under the sheets with a flashlight reading, you know, The Hobbit or J.R.R. Tolkien or 
lots of fantasy books. Um, it was just an escape and I don't know what it was, but I just, I just connected with it. And then, uh, you know, flash forward 20 years and, um, in college, I, I, I still had the love for reading that that's never gone away. And, uh, figured, Hey, maybe I'll give a little bit of a shot at writing and wrote a few, you know, short stories and started, you know, what I would, what called a novel back then and stopped and just never really continued with it. Um, got into to corporate America and accounting and, um, you know, it's, it's a grind you being an it kind of know, and yeah, uh, lots of hours, just really sort of, you know, pushing on promotions and, and advancement and, and all that stuff. But the entire time, um, I just had this itch that I wanted to write, you know, and, and to be creative and put something out there that yeah, it sounds, I guess, I don't know, not to get too deep, but I feel like books and stories, are there you know longer than we are right like they remain after we're gone so i just i've always felt this need to write and i feel like it's my purpose and so um in my i guess it was my early 30s really started doing it seriously and um you know wrote the proverbial failed novel and and moved on from there so yeah long answer, I'm, but. I'm glad you turned back to it uh i've really enjoyed getting introduced to your work this year thank you so much uh is there you mentioned the fantasy writers that you used to read is there any specific author or work that you find inspiration from yeah i mean so not so much with fantasy i think i, I don't want to say i outgrew it but maybe just my my taste shifted a little bit and um Absolutely, yeah one of the one of the books that just really resonated with me i just remember even where i was when i started this book but it's cormac mccarthy's the road and it's my favorite book of all time. And I, I think I was literally getting my oil changed and just sitting there in the shop and started. And I just, I just could not put it down. And I don't even know what it is about that book, but it was just such a important book in my life. And that was such an inspiration. So that, that really, you know, I, I read a bunch of post-apocalyptic books after that one and, and uh, just figured it's something that I wanted to give a go at myself. So um Spent some time thinking about feeders and wrote that. So yeah, I'd say the road and um poor books in general I've I've really enjoyed. Yeah, fantastic. The feeders, which we'll go into a little bit later more detail on how unique feeders is when you know where post-apocalyptic is concerned. Um, but can you elaborate a little bit? Tell us a little bit more about feeders. Post-apocalyptic has sort of been done to death. And so I, when I first started thinking about doing one, I knew I needed to try to sort of come up with a, I don't know, set of fresh ingredients to write it. Um, so I spent a lot of time figuring out how I wanted to do this and and not to give away the plot too much, but um, I guess just a quick summary. But my protagonist is uh, a girl by the name of Brent Donovan who starts out, look, I think it's, I think she's 23 years old and uh She's leaving her her tattoo parlor job and is abducted by her father, who should be imprisoned hundreds of miles away. And the reason he's abducted her is because he thinks that there's a there's an apocalypse coming, you know, from creatures that live in the earth called the feeders that Bryn thinks live only in his head. And so it's a I, I kind of coined it as the road trip from hell <laughs> through the Rocky Mountains where he built a, a call it a fallout shelter packed against these creatures and uh yeah that's sort of the summary yeah it, it's fantastic it you her 
relationship with her father is a, is a heavy focus. Um, and I did notice in the girls in the cabin that parent child relationship was also pretty central to the plot. Do you draw inspiration from, you know, your own parent child relationship, your, your relationship with your parents or your children? Yeah. Funny enough. Um, I have a great set of parents. I actually not <laughs> any, you know, issues, uh, you know, anything difficult in, in regards to them. So it's kind of funny that, um, some of my parental relationships are, are difficult, but, um, you know, as a father myself to three young girls, it's just, it's just been such a central focus in my life. And I think, it, you know, that relationship with a child is, is such a special one. Um, and such a formative one too, that I think I've subconsciously gone there in my, in my books and, and in my work. Um, something I think I'm going to have to actually focus on <laughs> shying away from in future work. So I don't just do the <laughs> current kid thing the entire time, but yeah, that's, uh, think again, just, it's a subconscious focus. It's something that has bled into my work without me even really realizing it, but has definitely shown up as a theme in my work. Yeah. And I, I think that the, the relationship is very realistic and overall positive. I mean, uh, every relationship is going to have ups and downs, but I think that the, you do a really great job of portraying them as fully realized relationships with a couple of errors, but overall a love and dedication to each other's safety. That is great. Thanks. Yeah. You know, no relationships perfect, like you said. So I, I think I've tried to craft those relationships as close to real life as I can. So definitely ups and downs. Uh, um, speaking of the nobody, no relationship being perfect. I, there are some, I don't want to call them flaws, but uh, for, for instance, Bryn struggles with addiction. And I think that you did that in a very positive light and that she is not shown as weaker or hindered due to that. And I, I don't have a question related to this. I just wanted to, Thank you for putting a positive representation of somebody that's going through that out into the mainstream, because a lot of times we're subjected to a lot of, I don't know how to, poor, yeah, stereotypes, poor representation, the villain tropes. Um, So I just, I appreciate that personally to read about somebody that, that still has the strength. Well, thank you. And you know, that's just it, right? Like it's so easy to judge other people. And and in truth, when you go through addictions or or you face challenges like that, um, they make you who you are, right? Like you're stronger because of them, not in spite of them a lot of the time. Um, And we all go through challenges. We all go through difficulties and, and um, they help us grow. So that's kind of what I wanted to represent with Bryn, and I appreciate that. That's the the uh, the take you took from it. So good to hear. Um. So in the back of the book, in the acknowledgments, you do mention that feeders was something that you had shelved previously, and that it had a little bit of a journey to land in you know where it is now, coming out next month. Can you share a little bit about that? 
I can. So speaking of stereotypes and tropes, one that you'll recognize yourself quite well is that rejection is is a is a very true aspect of the writing life. It's it's yeah. legitimate, happens, and it's difficult as hell. Um, I remember even just before I started writing, reading about like what authors had to say about the writing life, and they just said, "Be ready for rejecting and for rejection, and be ready for." to hear the word no over and over and over again so <laughs> so yeah you know i i uh, again probably a long answer here but when i wrote my first book it took me about five years and that was in between having twins and you know crazy work-life balance and i got to the end of that and um realized that it was a, a pile of garbage like even myself you know when i read the thing objectively it was like i can't get this out there this isn't good <laughs> so <laughs> so i shelved it and uh Put a ton of work into craft and read a lot of books to, to help me improve as a writer and spent a lot of time actually plotting um, feeders and thinking about what I wanted to write next. So when I started writing that book, I, I did it much quicker because I at least knew what I was doing, had some of the genre and plot conventions mapped out, um, wrote it in about, I think about two years and really felt proud of it afterwards. So um, decided to take it out with, uh, with an, with, or take it out to agents, try to secure representation because that's all I, that's the only way I knew to get a book published at that point in time. That's what you hear about the most as a writer. Um, so started submitting it to agents and was lucky enough to, to land one, which is a difficult feat in and of itself. Um, so at that point I just, you know, I, I figured it was going to sell and it was, you know, over the moon and my agent told me she was going to send it out to uh, film agents, which is something she hadn't done before. And so, you know, the expectations were very high. Uh, and then went on the rejection tour with all the publishers over a period of um, a little over a year and had some really close calls and definitely had some acquisition boards take a look at it. But in the end, you know, it just didn't sell. And that was devastating. I mean, after all that time and all that effort and all that work, you know, it was it was dead. So I, I literally set it aside and wrote my next book, and uh, that took another year and a half. And went out on uh, submission with my agent, and yet again, it didn't sell. And I was just like, "Oh my god, what have I done? I've wasted the last yeah, I don't know, eight years of my life. You know, what whatever the time frame was." Um, what I, I it's I wasn't even as low at that point as I was after feeders though because at that point I developed some thicker skin I'd had some short stories published you know I had the the short film made out of the wallpaper man I knew that I was on the right track and I just had to keep persisting and that's the case for most writers who make it right they just you just persist you just keep writing I mean that's what you do because you love writing and there's just there's no life without writing so what else are you going to do right so um uh, I wound up parting ways with my agent, and uh, this is just this is just so you know the way things work sometimes. But I sent both books out to publishers on my own indie presses, and within two months, I had deals for both. So it's crazy. Years of rejection, um, got a couple of yeses and a couple of months afterwards. So yeah, there you go. I mean, right there. See, indie authors are indie. I guess indie publishers are saving lives. That's, that's we're, right. We're very pro indie here, so the just skip the the mainstream stuff. The indie publishers will take care of you. We're doing good work. Yep. 
Um, so it feeders has a lot of hints to environmental horror. Did you intend that when you started or was that kind of an unintentional consequence? So a bit of, a little bit of both. Again, probably that's more subconscious. Uh, subconscious. I actually work in the energy industry um, <laughs> in accounting. So I often, you know, I often wonder what society and life would look like without, you know, oil and gas or green energy or whatever source we use because energy is what creates our standard of living. It actually, you hear a lot of negative things about it, but it brings a lot of positive too. Um, it allows us to live the lives we live, right? I mean, it goes into uh, medical facility equipment, the roads that we drive on, um, in our clothing. Uh, it, it, it's just more of a foundational piece of life than people probably consciously realize at times. And, and was, you know, there's only like, in regard to, I guess, oil and gas, there's only so much of it, as we all know, right? And yeah. um, and, it, and it is, there's no doubt that, you know, global warming is a thing. And um, so what I, what I tried to do is bring a little bit of um, a unique perspective to, again, the apocalyptic genre. Um, so yeah, it definitely does have a little bit of an environmental horror take, but, but it wasn't one that I fully consciously thought through either. It just sort of expressed itself as I wrote happy accidents. Yep, exactly. <laughs> uh, so what was the overall inspiration for feeders? You've touched a few times on, you know, pieces of inspiration, but it, it is a very, very unique take on the apocalyptic genre overall. Yeah. I, I touched on the road. I think just, in general, in regard to apocalyptic books, the reason that I'm drawn to those is just because it's such a stark difference um, as compared to how we live in today's day and age. And to sort of imagine what a world would look like when society collapses has always been fascinating to me. It's always interested to me. Um, you know, even young adult books like the the Hunger Games I dug, they were, they were fun when they came out. Um, but Another piece of this book, I guess that was an inspiration, is one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid was Tremors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just a fun, just a fun movie, right? And so I think, again, subconsciously, that one was a little bit of an inspiration as well. So um, I, I, I think I mentioned that I, I outlined it and I spent probably six, well, maybe not six months, maybe three to four months really trying to come up with... Uh, a list of ingredients for the apocalyptic stew that I've ne I'd never really seen before. So, and then I just kind of threw it at the wall to see if it would stick, but um, yeah, hopefully that provides a little bit of an answer there. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I guess I should just go out on a limb and say that I, um, it, it touched all of the things that I look for. I love post-apocalyptic horror. I Me love post-apocalyptic. I love insects. Uh, I think that that the thing that I love about post-apocalyptic, and you did portray this very well, is that it, it is indiscriminate in who it victimizes. I, I mean, it's breaking down society, and society is kind of what puts certain people or casts on a pedestal, and that's all gone when the apocalypse comes. So I think that you did a really good job of going through that process uh i mean a lot of the i guess i'll just call them transitional scenes to avoid spoiling things but they were very vividly realized so 
Awesome. Um, I'd, I'd believe it if you told me you lived through an apocalypse. I know. I appreciate <laughs> that. Well, sort of springboard off something you said, but when everybody, well, indiscriminate, right? Like, uh, lots of pressure lead to very interesting character studies. So, you know, when everything's stripped away, right? Like who is a person, you know, what do they value? What, what, what matters the most in their life? And that's a big theme of feeders is I wanted to strip away all of the devices and structures that most of the characters have relied on, mm -hmm. you know, throughout their lives and to really focus in on what's most important to them, which, which I, which I do think comes to bear as the book goes on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the characters overall are very, very well realized. I think that the characterization is something that you're strong with in, in everything that I've read. But this feeder specifically, everybody had a very real personality and desires and fears. And I I think that the the twist um was a good payoff because of the characterization that you did in the preview, like for the rest of the book. Thanks. That actually means a lot. Uh, character work, something I've really had to focus on and study. And I don't think it was one of my strengths when I first started. I mean, I, it takes a while to mm -hmm. even realize how to write somebody and what makes sense and what feels real. I mean, that takes, it takes time. So again, appreciate that. Yeah. And you write your books in first person, which is, is a struggle of its own you know it's its own monster because you have to really lean into that voice <laughs> so you do. um are you working on anything right now are you writing any novels so it's really interesting that you bring up first person because i i currently am working on a new novel but it's in third person and it's specifically <laughs> in third person because i want to do something a little bit different mm -hmm. um I don't want my novels to ever have the exact same feel, right? Like I, I, I want to continue to grow as a, an author and um, provide readers with something that's fresh that they haven't necessarily seen before. So hopefully that works in this one. It's been um, because I've written in first so much, it's been a little bit more difficult for me to start this book, but it's, it's uh, really starting to take off. And um, I put it more on the psychological thriller genre realm uh, than yes. horror but there's definitely going to be some horror mixed in there uh but yeah um it's a book about i would say two estranged sisters who have a pretty troubled past who wind up on a um let's call it a cruise with a potential cult so oh yes okay <laughs> i will be looking for that one um it i am the opposite i write in third person almost exclusively I struggle a lot with first person, so I, I'm excited to see how you you pull it out. Whether you know, we're I guess we'll learn. Are you a one trick pony? <laughs> you got it. Well, I, I did um did mix it in with uh with the girls in the cabin, so I do have some third person there. Yeah, there, um, there is the, the italicized stuff is third the person. Italicized, that. Mm -hmm. but it was easier for me to sort of. I guess pepper that story with third person because I could always go back to first, you know, my crutch, mm -hmm. but we just get used to what we work in. Right. Like you said, yep. third person, and that's just what you get used to. And, um, doesn't mean you shouldn't try other things and you might be great in first person too. I'd like to see a, a first person book for you. So at some point, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I, my problem yeah. is that I, I bounce around a lot in POV, which you did too. I've just never thought of it 
as something I could do in first person, but you did it successfully between, um, uh, I know that, that it's Kayla and Emma, but I can't remember the Clara, dance. Chris. Yeah. It's a lot of character. Uh, Chris, yeah. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um, a, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. To, uh, that's the thing about third person too. That's so hard, man. Uh, you know, always, or speaking from different points of view is, it was way harder than I ever thought it would be. So props to you for doing that because you really have to, in your own right you have to know those character voices too right so oh, popping yeah, in and out of everybody else's head that's that's tough absolutely but easier to stay in one person <laughs> it is that's the the whole thing i mean we just got to put the work in and spend the time learning the craft that's i think something that people don't realize the readers is that you know yes it does take a long time to just write one book but every book has hundreds of writing hours before it that all just got tossed. I have, you probably do too have novels that just, they, they can't come back out. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You get so, so sick of them. They like literally make you ill. Mm -hmm. I also think like, once you hit that point with the book, you, you, you realize it's like, it's actually probably pretty good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're not going to be able to do better. Right? Like once you're so sick of a story, it's probably time to, to ship it off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, we like to collect recommendations, but I think first and foremost, we're all readers here. So what books, authors in the indie sphere are you reading now? What are you loving? Yeah, so um, an author you you also know, but one book that I just read that I loved and I thought had, it, it, it's an awesome horror book. It's sort of a locked room concept, but it's This Wretched Valley by Jenny Kiefer. Mm -hmm. I just read an arc of that. It's badass. It's it was just a lot of fun. Um, I don't know if she'd appreciate me likening it to this to this book, but it did it ha did have some of the ruins vibes, which was another um, wonderful book that I that's that's a classic that I loved when I read that book and movie was great. So, but no, that one's it's just a good book. I'd recommend everybody grab it and uh, just settle in for an afternoon. It's fun. Um, Is that releasing? this year like late this year december or i think it's january january okay yep so i was lucky to get my hands on an arc but it was a lot yeah it's a, it's a good one and then um another one that i read that kind of took me by surprise i just was seeing it flash around everywhere but have you read uh what moves the dead by t kingfisher i have not read it yet i have it in my tbr uh with the bunny on the cover yeah yeah it's Love it, it. it's cool it's like a slow creeping reimagining of um the fall of the house of usher by Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, okay. But, you know, different. Yeah. <laughs> different in its own right. But it's just a cool, creepy sort of... Um, ah, what was the... I'm trying to think of, like, uh, fungus horror, I guess. That's what I was... That's the word I was searching yeah, for. Fungus horror. I Like the uh, the Marigold by um, Andrew. Um, yeah, Solo. okay. It's yeah, kind of got those vibes to it, too, which is another great book. Deal. So, I... We'll have to check them out. Actually, um, in our author feature, which is what this is next month. Um, so this episode is we're, we're interviewing four authors, just focusing on authors and the work that they're putting out. Andrew is meeting with us next month. So we're doing oh, very cool this month for the next month. I don't recall if it's over the Marigold, um, like just TBD. <laughs> check back and see. He's a good dude. I really like Andrew and his writing's great too. 
Yeah, and he's a great marketer too. <laughs> oh yeah, he is. He really is. Well, it helps when you get to get to be pretty good friends with Nick Cutter too, right? Greg Davis. Right. <laughs> we'll uh, wait, wait, again, oh, that's another one. I just read the troop, and I put that one off for a long time. Mixed feelings on it, but all in all, it um, I've thought about it for a long time, so I'd recommend that one too. It, it thought about that book quite a bit actually. So, so that one, I, I also had mixed feelings on it. I I still now don't have like a full read on where I fell, but, but <laughs> I, I, it is something that you come back to a lot and it took some risks that a lot of authors are a little bit scared to, to take. hundred percent. Yeah. And I think I, I kind of, sometimes I'll judge a book based on how much it impacts me, for, you know, for the good or bad, really. Uh-huh. Like I'm still thinking about that book, you know, I don't know. It's been a couple months. So that means something. Yeah. Uh, this one is not an indie book, but I read a book uh, called Her Fearful Symmetry by Audrey Niffenegger. Uh, yes. Probably like 12, 13 years ago. And I I actually, I hated it. I can't, <laughs> I hated it, but I think about it all the time. So it's obviously. So, I mean, yeah. Like it was impactful, right? So the writing must've been good. Yeah. All righty. Well, thank you for taking some time to meet with us today. Um, typically, this would be the point where we would ask where you're located, like your your socials, but we read those earlier in the bio. Um, so that is, as a reminder, www.calebstevensauthor.com and on Instagram at Caleb Stevens Author. Are you anywhere else? Used to be on, you know, uh, switch. I have a hard time calling on Twitter. I'm still there, but it's the it's dying. Um, well, Threads isn't great. I'm actually on TikTok, even though I don't know how to use it. I'm mostly <laughs> just stalking people, I guess, or other other authors and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mostly Instagram these days. Uh, the social media stuff kind of wears me out. I don't know if it does you, but yeah, I don't spend a lot of time. I'm not great at it. Uh, I don't ever remember to post. I don't have anything interesting to say. Are, are you on Blue Sky yet? I am. I am. That's another place I have. I have yet to fully engage, but it does seem like a little bit more of a chill place for sure. Yeah. So but, but yeah, I, uh, my website or just email me or, you know, jump on Instagram. Yeah. Easy enough to find anyways. And thank you for the, uh, the time and having me today, Brad. It's been great. Absolutely. So um, after this, we actually have Ray Knowles and she is going to be doing a guest interview with Lynn's McLeod, McLeod. I, I apologize, Linz. I should have done this beforehand, but um, so if you stay tuned, you will be listening for them. I can't wait to hear it. In fact, Ray's book is another book I have on my to be read list. It's just my to be read list is so high. So, but oh, the Merciless, Water. Merciless Waters, I think. Oh, so I got to read an arc of that one and it just blew me. It's, it's, I, I it's indescribable. I can't even, it's amazing. It's so you, so you, yeah, you'd recommend it then. One million percent, I would recommend it. It's oh man, I, that's it's been sitting on my to be read list for a little bit. So I got I got to get to that one too. Just it, family life and writing and all that definitely has a way of crimping your reading time. So oh, absolutely, and and uh, the podcast is one that's for me because we constantly are reading for the podcast, and I feel yeah. like I, I mean it's great stuff. I get to read great authors, but it also I, my TBR is growing. Yeah, <laughs> that's a way of doing that for sure. All right, thank you. Thanks. Thanks.
welcome back. This is Ray Knowles, and I am guest hosting today. Um, I'm the author of The Stradivarius and Merciless Waters, and I am super excited to interview Lynn's McLeod, a fellow queer horror author. Um, Linz is a queer working class Scottish writer and editor who dabbles in the surreal. Her prose has been published by Apex, Catapult, Pseudopod, The Razor, and many more, including prior issues of Assemble Artifacts. Her longer work includes the short story collection Turducken from Space Boy in 2023, and her debut novel Beast is coming from Hear Us Scream in 2024. She's a full member of the SFWA, the club president of the Edinburgh Writers Club, and is currently working on a PhD in creative writing at Manchester University. Linz is represented by Laura Zatz at Headwater Literary Management, and is just an all-around wonderful human. So Linz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And how did I do on Edinburgh pronunciation? Absolutely perfectly. We oh, we do yeah. Americans a little bit gently uh, for the pronunciation. <laughs> the real pronunciation, if you want to pretend that you're kind of local, is Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like when I eventually word. visit, I'll remember yeah. that. <laughs> so just to kind of start out our listeners, tell us a little bit about why you write in the first place. So that's always an interesting question because it's kind of like asking why I breathe. Like mm. I because I have to because I would die without it. Um I think the closest I've ever got to explaining it properly is I have story splinters inside me and I need to tweeze them out a little bit. Um otherwise they just live in there and it gets infected and nobody wants that. I love that explanation. I might have to steal that next time someone asks me that question because that like resonates so purely with me. I think writing and publishing, you may or may not feel the same way, but I think it's so emotionally challenging. I don't know that anyone would do it if they could do anything else. <laughs> I completely agree. I've often said like to um, to friends who don't write, you know, imagine that you that you painted and every time you finished a painting you asked people if they wanted to see it and they just said no or (laughs) if every time you finished a painting someone just slapped you right in the face that is what writing is like that's the publishing industry and yet you can't stop painting anyway it's it's a very strange place to be but I think maybe we're all just we're all just sadists and masochists at heart really Yeah, I think so, too. So speaking of sadism, um, why did you get into horror and speculative as sort of a a genre? So I've always been interested in speculative fiction. I really like the place where um, literary blurs into SFF and, and speculative covers that in a variety of really interesting ways. I, I never thought of myself as really being a horror writer because, um, a lot of the things I write are not necessarily horrifying to me, but they scare other people. They scare the pants off other people. And I realize th- there's a bit of a trope that goes around which says, you know, the horror writers that you know are probably the most cheerful little balls of sunshine. And that's true because we are. <laughs> we don't know that we're scaring people and sometimes, you know, we like it. But I don't always know that I'm doing it until someone reads it and reacts to it. Um, the things that I personally find are horrifying are quite different. Um, but uh, sometimes I just think they're funny. Um, and this is the case with with the book we're going to be talking about. There are certain instances in this book where 
it's very very dark comedy and I thought it was very funny and there were people who read it and understood that and people who read it and did not laugh my parents asked me if I was okay um (laughs) and I, I obviously said yes I'm completely fine I just thought it was funny I just have a very dark sense of humor I think I relate to that as well. Yeah. And I think we could probably go off on a whole tangent about horror and the many ways, you know, it can impact people aside from just, you know, being written with the intention of to scare, you know, like I I know for myself, I'd almost never write with the intention to scare like you. Sometimes it's like darkly Mm -hmm. funny or sometimes I find things really touching or just absurd. Um, Yeah. I don't know if you've read my pseudopod story, uh, them at number 74. Um, it is basically what would happen if my very pleasant retired parents were murderers. Um, and it was it, it's very darkly funny, but for some reason that is probably, to me, it's the least scary story I've ever written because it feels quite real. They are not murderers, by the way, to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> and I, will, I will say that in court. But... Um, Almost everyone who's ever read that story, and it also comes up a lot with people who read the collection, they say, God, that story scared me so much. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the one that got me that I'm still thinking about. And I'm like, why? Because it follows the mundanity of their life more than it follows the killing. But there's something really creepy about that. Um, yeah. That I like a lot. yeah. The things that end up scaring me the most are always super grounded in day-to-day life like I'm a total true crime nerd and Mm -hmm. obviously horror nerd and that's all the content I consume but there's certain shows like for example the first 48 which is like a cop drama whatever but it's set like an hour from my house one of Mm -hmm. the locations and it's that same sort of thing that mundane like police procedure thing but it's so close to home that it's so grounded in reality and also all that cop hero nonsense aside but it's terrifying to me because it's like so real um I think there's something to that so are there any um authors in particular or works in particular that inspired you in in working on Beast so I've always had um a particular place in my heart for historical fiction um when I was a teenager I read in the school library uh, which was not super developed at the time I read a lot of classics so I was reading like the Brontes um Elliot Hardy Austin Robert Graves as well who I still love um and I think that gave me uh, like this certain urge to write kind of pastoral scenes mm-hmm. um but I kind of wanted to reimagine them with through a more contemporary lens um, and also retellings in general, they have become a thing um, yeah. in the modern day. We see this with like, there was a massive trend of um, Greek uh, mythology retellings over the past few years that were was really interesting. Some of them done better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a retelling when done well, and when done with um, the view in mind that it should be contributing something new to the canon and not just retelling the story, um, can be really interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love retellings for that same reason, like sort of reimaginings through a different lens. So tell anyone who is listening that might not be familiar a little bit about Beast. Okay, so Beast is what happens when you get very bogged down in the minutia of the Disney film and you start to pick apart all of the plot holes. There are many. Um, 
And I remember thinking, you know, I have several problems with this plot as it stands. Like, firstly, I don't understand why um, Belle and her father are not French, but everyone in this town is French. This is very confusing. I don't understand why, why or who Chip is. Mrs. Potts is clearly too old to be his mother, so there's just a random child walking around this castle. And I also did not understand um, why the witch decided that instead of cursing this one man who was kind of a brat to her she decided to curse the entire castle and everyone in it and to me that felt like a really classist move and and i you know the witch is kind of seen it's posited in the story as being the bringer of justice but mm-hmm. actually she's enabling the class system as well i just the more i thought about it the more it really angered me um and i kind of wanted to to do something about that so beast is the story of a butler um all he wants to do is walk in the footsteps of his father who was also a butler and he wants to be the best little butler he could be he wants to be the little butler that could and yet unfortunately for him uh, there is massive class warfare, it is said at the time when the French Revolution is is just starting to kick off um, and it's the tendrils of it are reaching out to where he is in uh, a more rural area of France. And in addition to that, there are magical elements that are causing him problems as well. Um, at its heart, it's basically the remains of the day if Stevens was an even worse person. Um, and I didn't know that. I didn't read the remains of the day until after I'd finished Beast and had, had queried it. And at which point I thought, fuck, well, someone's already written this. Um, but they didn't do magic. haha. So, uh, you know, maybe there's a Nobel in my future. Who can say? Um, thank you. So, yeah, essentially that it boils down to following one man who really just wants to do one thing and he wants to live his life and have his special little routines and he doesn't want to be disrupted from those and the world is completely not willing to to let him have his little joys yeah I found him such a compelling main character to view this story through because you do sort of a trick that I love to try to pull off as well which is sort of the creeping horrors are happening at the periphery of the story because we're Mm -hmm. getting it from the lens of someone who is so focused on something which is minute by comparison, but not to our main character. So it has this really cool and and intriguing effect of like, we're mostly getting him, like you said, all about his routine and like the etiquette of this and that and these very like small details that are so important to him and then I'm like in the background though we're getting like hints of big problems brewing Mm -hmm. and it creates this really excellent tension yeah I think for me one of the things I find most interesting in fiction is a character who puts their head in the sand who refuses to confront a problem and will not engage with conflict and just continually runs away from it over and over and just cannot deal. There's something really, really compelling about that to me as I inflict and heap more and more problems on someone to watch them absolutely crack under the strain. Um, there's actually a one of my favorite moments is there's um, uh, Le Major Dom, the butler, wakes up and there's something awful scratching outside his bedroom door. And he doesn't know what it is, but it sounds like a monster. And 
one of the first things he thinks is if one of the other servants had left the door open um, to the kitchen and let something in, he thinks it might be a wolf or something. And he's thinking to himself, if I find out who it was, um, especially if he eats someone, I'm going to dock their pay. And yeah. you know, you can tell a lot of that 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 is his, he's like, I can't believe you would make my life harder. I will, I will take your pay. And I'm like, you we know who you are from that that take. You're yeah. not really thinking properly about the danger. You almost don't believe that something dangerous could ever really happen to you. You live in a bubble. Um so it's it's really interesting when when that bubble bursts. Yeah. And and how much do you think? Uh, or in your imagining of him, is that him trying to protect himself from the dangers of the world through this obsession with routine? Or am I sort of off the mark? No, no, that's completely right. And I think the things that his father has taught him, and um, he has these books that his, where his father has written down screeds and screeds about the etiquette of of castle life and being a butler and he he reads them over for comfort every night and he kind of draws from this and he's not really able to conceive of situations that his father has not talked about in these books and because he's never really left the castle he has nothing against which to measure new situations so it's partly his inability to deal with something new and to keep trying to revert back to a familiar routine um but also a belief that if he is simply a good butler, then surely nothing bad can happen because that is what he has always believed. And he just cannot comprehend that actually maybe he can't butler his way out of this because it's not, uh, you know, um, an extra guest at the dinner table or it's not someone brought the wrong vintage or, or color of wine. It's actual problems people turning into furniture slowly uh, the threat of the guillotine coming ever closer a peasant army like people turning up like headless in the ground it's not these are things that cannot be solved with like a little bit of silverware polishing basically yeah and obviously this is a historical piece and it's very steeped in history but I wonder how much you feel we can extrapolate to situations today where someone who is sort of oppressed by a, a ruling class is kind of doing everything in their power to guard against confronting that reality. Do you kind of see where I'm I'm going with that? Yeah, I think so. Um, so I grew up working class and I was kind of drawn to this idea of conflict because, as I said, like I thought the the witch was terribly unfair in casting the curse on everyone. But when we think about fairy tales, whether traditional or contemporary, we are thinking often about the heroes and the heroines or the witches or the royalty and not very much about like the underlings, the peasants, the servants. I mean, the peasants may become a hero or a queen and then get sort of elevated but um george r. r martin does this very well in a game of thrones where he talks about you know people nobles and royalty playing the game of thrones and of course they're presented with immediate danger you you play the game of thrones you win or you die but the people who are most affected by it the people who lose their lives and are oppressed are the small folk uh and he makes that really clear that like the small folk don't really care who sits on the iron throne what they care about is like having enough food in their bowls, a shelter over their head, their family safe and not sent to war for, for some cause or other that they don't really care about. Um, 
so these were all the kinds of things in my head that, that I was thinking the butler represents kind of a hinge between the two worlds here because he's he is a servant but he does not consider himself part of that servant class he doesn't think of himself uh that way and he also thinks of the peasants who don't work in the castle as being beneath them still but there is also a hierarchy above him where there is the family that he worked for and and now is basically reduced to the young master but there's also other relatives who are coming um he presumes to to help out and he's thinking about what he's going to do when they get there and how he can sort of manage the situation he's very much like a middleman stuck in between these two worlds and he does not really know how to manage either even though he thinks he does mm-hmm. yeah no it, it's just so rife with tension and, and wonderful so what was it like you mentioned sort of starting with the cartoon to like take these cartoony Disney characters mm-hmm. and imagine them with histories and problems and as full, fully drawn people. Like, what was that like? So it was interesting. And when I first kind of imagined it, I, because I, well, here's my controversial opinion. Um, Gaston did nothing wrong. <laughs> And uh, you know, I'm like, I'm I'm very willing for that to be the hill that I die on. But when you consider, at least in the Disney version, um, Gaston and the Beast are kind of two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. They are both surrounded by a group of people. They are they are the powerful kind of alpha in that group, if you will. Um Gaston is a hunter, he is pretty much illiterate. The beast, you know, has a huge library, doesn't seem to like to read a whole bunch. They're quite brutish, uh, they're animal, they're physical. However, the difference between them really is that the beast has people telling him, hey, you're wrong. Hey, you're not doing this thing right. He has people who are willing to push back. All Gaston has are yes men. Mm. Um, And it kind of makes me wonder whether if Gaston had had that same kind of pushback, whether he could have grown uh, and kind of evolved past what he was. So I had this idea in my head that that Gaston would be part of this and he just never made it into the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I would really like to write a sequel where, where Gaston's in it in some way, but um, maybe that's for another time. Um, but when I was thinking about this, I, I wanted to to take that idea of, you know, setting it at this time in the French Revolution and, and kind of, it was always a period in history that really interested me because it is this kind of perfect melting pot of, of class warfare boiling over and you know i think we all we all know and love the saying eat the rich um and the rich were not eaten so much as you know just chopped up a little bit in in preparation but i thought it was really interesting and so when i started kind of looking into it and researching you know okay well like what what would a castle at this point look like where might it be um i did a fair amount of research on like you know the region and the year so that i could kind of make sure that it was it felt right the atmosphere and the tensions felt right and I also did a bizarre amount of uh, research probably more than I did on the time period um, on the food uh, so the meals served are relatively accurate because um, I am very heavily food oriented <laughs> in my in my work I really like to talk about food and the, also the crockery on the table is accurate as well wow. um I took a little bit of artistic license here and there with things like the clothes, particularly the the maid's clothes. Um, 
for to me that was it was less important I had a kind of idea in my head of what I wanted it to look like cinematically but it was also another way of showcasing Le Major Dom's focus on what he thinks is important and what he thinks is trivial and not necessarily what the world at large he's a very focused man with a, a narrow viewpoint and at several points he's you know he looks at the maids and he judges them based on certain criteria and he objectifies them but he never really does it in a sexual way it's more an aesthetic beauty um mm. and it's kind of interesting how he he compares them to uh what the lady looks like um and and how beautiful she was and you're left wondering you know if the positions had been switched is it merely her rank that makes her more beautiful to you is she worthy of it um he's not he's quite an asexual character um he is uh he's absolutely a virgin um and is really not kind of capable of moving through the social cues and understanding the etiquette of like person to person contact that he might need in order to um to achieve some kind of intimate relationship, whether romantic or sexual, with someone. The closest he gets is, I think, to the cook, and they have they have a friendship. It is a little bit fraught, but they do have a, a friendship going on. She understands him, I think, more than he understands himself. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I picked up on all of that. Um, again, he's just such a fascinating character. And I love hearing you talk about the different research that went into this, because it really shows, I mean, reading this, I felt like I was there. I mean, there wasn't a single point where I, I didn't feel fully immersed in, in this world and in this time period. So I, I'm just curious, how did you come up with characterizations? Like how closely was that linked to the item that they turned into? Ah, uh, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, I'm kind of a pantser. So I didn't really plot a lot of this beforehand. I would just write and see where everything kind of went. Um, there is a spoiler that I will skip over with one of the maids about what she turns into. Um, and that particularly I will I will give you a little anecdote however um my my parents had been reading this book so I had been uh, writing it and I had recorded a chapter every week um in an audio file and I would send it to them and they would sit down with a coffee and some biscuits on a Friday night and apparently they would listen to it and I remember my mother calling me the next day and saying oh I listened to the chapter last night um where something happens to one of the mates and, and she changes and she was so deeply upset about what I did <laughs> and she asked me if I would consider changing it and I said no because that means it's working and I think she thought that was pretty cruel but she she said I lay awake thinking about how how sad that was and how unfair for her um, and to me I was like great I've nailed it I've hurt someone that's wonderful but it, yeah it, it, it felt very right I think they turn into um, objects that that feel right for them uh, I think the cuisinier was, you know, by dint of her job, she was always going to turn into a, like a kitchen appliance in some way. But which one was, I think, up for grabs until quite late. And then I, I realized there was only really one way that that it could go with her being the kind of fiery opposite to Le Major Dom's cold, steady, measured, or so he thinks, responses. Um, and the... Um, it also allowed for a bit of humor as well. Like there's there's a part where one of the footmen starts to to change and hit one of his arms is becoming wooden. 
um and he sort of you know mentions it to the butler and the butler's like well you can still hold a cloth with your other hand you know come on fuck up and <laughs> again it's very dark humor because this poor boy is turning turning into a piece of furniture and and there's no um it's going to happen like there is no escape from the castle they are blocked off from the outside world um it's going to happen and he does not have the ability to kind of show compassion or, or proper empathy in this moment he's just the first thing he thinks of is oh but you can still do your job so you know you, you can take solace in that like he would do and and he's not able to kind of um delve in between uh like the the ticks of the clock I think yeah yeah oh it, it's just such a strong book I'm so excited for people to start reading it it was a joy to be able to read it early um, so tell us where people can get it. When is it coming out? Give give everyone the lowdown. Okay, so it's coming out with um, a wonderful small press called Hear Us Scream. And it is coming out on the 12th of October. Um, you can pre-order it right now directly from Hear Us Scream. And there will be Amazon links coming, I think, in the next couple of days, if that is more useful. And I'm also getting it stocked in, it'll be stocked in indie bookstores, I think, in the US. And it will also be stocked in um, bookstores here in Edinburgh and also in Manchester, which is where I am right now recording this because uh, that is where I'm doing my PhD. That's so exciting. And where can folks find you if they want to follow your work on social media? Well, I know that Twitter slash X is a sinking ship, but I'm still there, you know, clinging to the very topmost mast. Um, I'm also on Blue Sky. Um, I'm on both platforms under Lynn's McLeod because I'm not imaginative in that particular way. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can find me also on my website, which is www.lynnsmcleod.co.uk. Surprisingly, there you go. Um, and I am generally around. I, I chair a lot of events and I frequently turn up. I go wherever people ask me to go, frankly. So I'm frequently turning up places. I love that. And speaking of anything else you want to plug? Um, I do actually. So um, I have my short story collection, Turducken, that you mentioned earlier, um, that came out um, at the end of last year and, and was republished again this year by Space Boy. And um, we have a wonderful paperback edition with a cosmic turducken on the front. We also have an art deco cover for the hardback, which is super beautiful. And it is uh, showcasing the best of my short fiction. So uh, pieces in this collection were published in Catapult and uh, Pseudopod and Flash Fiction Online. Um, there are a lot of things in there where I kind of push the boundaries. Some of them are regular prose. Some of them are more hermit crab style. Um, one of my favorites is a story which is told entirely in clues for a crossword puzzle. Um, uh -huh. And it actually does make a real crossword because uh, I'm such a dork that I made sure that it did. Um, and also oh, cool. I will have, although I'm not allowed to say too much about this now, but uh, once the the WGA strikes are over, I should have some more news. So I'm being extremely like I'm tight-lipped about this although I'm very excited and I also should have another book announcement coming quite soon as well and I'm very very excited by that one. Well I am so thrilled for you and like I said this is just a stunning book it's so so well done so please anyone listening do your pre-order go grab it and final question what would you title your memoir if you wrote it today? So uh, my friends used to joke that it would be called, she said it was, 
quote unquote probably fine because I would say it's probably fine then I would do something and like injure myself um and they, that would be quite correct uh but if I wrote it today I'm thinking um there's a Joni Mitchell song called The Wolf That Lives in Lindsay and it is spelled exactly like my name and I think that's you know if Joni would be so obliging that would be a pretty good title for a memoir I love that. You know, she's a friend of my father's. So really? if you'd like, we can. My God. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if she felt like being terribly obliging, I would be so good. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was so fun. It's the first time we've gotten to chat this way um, mm -hmm. via Zoom and just appreciate it. And your work is stellar. And I hope everyone listening buys it because they should. Thank you very much. And and can I just say, because I haven't had a chance to, but Big fan, longtime fan. Oh, oh gosh, that's too sweet of you. Now I'm emotional. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cry. We've got through the whole thing without crying. We did. <laughs> well, thank you again. And I will wrap us up. And we're back. And today I am joined by MJ Galeos. MJ is an emergency medicine physician who enjoys horror, medicine and wicked women looking for revenge. Put all three together. And now we're talking. She lives in Illinois with her wife and two cats. In her spare time, she enjoys binging reality trash TV, brewing beer and running while listening to EDM so she can drink said beer. She is the author of two novellas, Just Desserts and the chat book, Only You Can Prevent Forest Fires. NJ, welcome. Thank you for having me, Elton. Well, thank you for coming. I'm very, very excited to talk to you today because I have finished reading your book and I'm inspired. I'm, I'm I'm just yeah I'm excited to get into it. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how you started writing? Um, where where did your inspiration come from? How did you get into this game? Yeah, absolutely. Well, whenever I was younger, I um, did have a you know like computer paper uh, comic called Super Cat, which was it, you know unfortunately it never took off, um, but it was a cat <laughs> that had a cape. That was around second grade, but um, I, I did dabble with writing, like journaling, which was very filled with like lesbian angst when I was in high school, you know, as you do, as you do, um, as you do. But I didn't really like come out with my writing until um, about COVID pandemic time. Mm. Um, obviously, you know, working in the ER during COVID was a bit depressing and anxiety provoking yeah a little bit you know yeah. a little bit ps ptsd there but no big deal um so i i just essentially i kind of decided to go for it because i've always wanted to write a novel it was it was on my bucket list mm -hmm. and i saw how kind of fragile and short life could be so i was just like fuck it i'm gonna go for it and give it a try um and at that time, I didn't really have any, like, plan to, like, show anybody. But once I started going, I was like, yeah, screw it. Let's, let's give it a try and see what happens. 
and you have produced, well, obviously I just said about the, the two um, shorter pieces you've got. This is your first novel. Yep. How was the process different from writing something a little bit shorter, like a chat book to writing something that's a full piece that, that is a novel? Did you, uh, did you find the process a little bit different or a little bit more daunting? Definitely daunting. Um, Cause I, I do have a, several short stories plus you know like you said the the novellas and whatnot and i feel like those are I guess, easier in a way um because you can kind of compress things um but yeah the the novel was a bit daunting because you know i have these like ideas of these scenes and then i'm like shit i have to fill in like the gaps in between here yeah um but yeah and then Oh, I initially had started it in the third person from Casey's point of view and like it, it wasn't working. So I had to go through the entire thing oh, no. and rewrite it in the first person. I think I, that was one of my favorite bits about it is the fact that it is written for the most part from Casey's point of view. Um, but obviously there are times when Casey cannot tell that story. She is like unconscious or she is on her own. Um, and I, I liked the way that we got to meet these other characters in between that kind of filled in the gaps where it was like putting a puzzle together and it was really it was really cool the way that happened and so yeah I just really appreciated that I thought that was really really cool um thank you so this story is about transplantation without giving too much away to the audience it's about um I mean I was trying to put it into a genre earlier and I, I was thinking to myself like sci-fi body horror kind of yeah it's got body so horror, much yeah. actual like medical background in it and you are a doctor um how much about transplantation did you know as a doctor before you went into writing this book uh, so you know whenever we do um like our medical school rotations we we have to do like certain ones that are required um so general surgery is one um and, you know, then you have like your electives where you would decide, you know, oh, I want to do neurosurgery or whatever, which I mean, I, my hands are too shaky. I can't do that. But um, whenever I was a student, I got to actually scrub in in the back where I couldn't touch anything, um, a harvesting uh, surgery for organs. So that that was pretty much the extent of it other than, um, you know, Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. Dr. Yang. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Like, you caught that. <laughs> absolutely. We all love um, Sandra Oh. Um, I was very, very happy to see there is a character called Dr. Yang in this. And I love that. Um, I have to ask you this, actually, because in the UK, when someone is a surgeon, they're no longer called doctor. They're called Mr. or Miss. Really? Yes. And I feel like that's a really huge disservice to what they've learned previously. Is it, yeah. are you still a doctor if you're a surgeon in America? Yeah, that's weird, really. That it is really weird. I think it comes from something to do with the fact that back in the really old days, the uh, people who would perform minor surgeries would be barbers. They weren't actually trained mm -hmm. medical professions or anything. And so they were just Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, and they would do the, the surgeries. But they, they kind of carried it on now. And I had a friend who was a surgeon. I was like, why aren't you a doctor? <laughs> It just, it struck me as like, you just, you worked so hard to get your, your doctorate and now they've taken it away from you and now you're just Mr. It just seems really sad. It's like um, Austin Powers where Dr. Evil's like, 
I didn't go to six years of evil medical school to be called Mister. Thank you very much. It literally reminded me of that. And I was just like, I don't know if they have this in America or not, but um, yeah, I, I had to ask. But very interesting. That's interesting, though. I, I didn't know that when yeah. you guys call the ER was A and E. A and E, yeah. That's fairly yeah. new, actually. We used to call it the um, uh, ED, emergency department. It was just, you know, it was just a random department within the hospital. It was nothing different than anything else. But recently they've changed it to A&E and it's like, why? Because I think people get the wrong idea about it as well. It's always overblown with people who've got paper cuts and stuff like that. So, <laughs> you know, so we have the minor injuries unit as well, but people don't use that as much. Okay. Learn yeah. and look at that. You're teaching me. <laughs> it's very strange over here. It's uh, it just I think because England is so ridiculous and old school. We we have lots of really old traditional ways. Like we have a queen, so well a king now, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love England though. I I went um before I started residency um, with my ex girlfriend, but. Um, she did like a year abroad in Brighton, so she oh, knew nice. yeah. people. Yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved England. Brighton is gorgeous. I love Brighton. It's one of like the just the coolest and prettiest places that I've been to in England. I like it. It's, oh yeah, it's we went than London. We went to this like club that was like it was like three different stories, and there was like nine different like clubs in there so there was like wow. country and then like yeah edm it was it was wild so what would you say um what's, what kind of work of other authors do you feel have inspired you have, have brought sort of uh, ideas and an inspiration to your work i gotta go with my an old standby which i think most people that like horror do stephen king, stephen I mean, king. <laughs> you have to right um he wrote and, The Stand, far, of course you do. Got it. That's like my favorite mm. book too. Like one day I would aspire to write, like I want to write like a zombie story, nice. but like yeah. that. Um, so definitely Stephen King. Um, and then a lot of like Robin Cook. Because um, he, I think he's like an ophthalmologist or something actually. But I mean like, you know, his his medical thrillers are pretty good. Um and then as far as, you know, people in the um, indie horror community, Laurel Hightower, you know, for sure. Um, May Knowles. Um, gosh, there's like so many of them, honestly. Yeah. I think we're, we're really blessed at this moment in time to have such amazing, strong, powerful female voices in the indie industry. And I think that's that's sort of one of the, one of the perks of, sort of being in it at this time is that we're getting to see a lot of like own voices, stories told. And, and yours is, is just one of them. It's it's brilliant in the way that it's done. So how much of Casey is you? I want to know how much you put into yourself before and after the transplant. So one, one thing that maybe like a kind of a theme, I guess, that either consciously or subconsciously I put in there um, was, you know, she kind of follows a life script, right? She, oh, I need to get a husband. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids, which I mean, like, it's not a bad thing by any means. But um, I, I guess, like, I've always gotten some external, like, pressure 
why are you going to find a husband? And it's like, well, <laughs> bit of a gay. So there's that, you know, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, yeah, why aren't you having kids? Why don't you want kids? So I think that I kind of tried to maybe channel that a little bit. Like, this yeah. is what happens maybe if you do things and you don't consider what might happen. I had secondhand rage for Casey when uh, the chapter happened where um, she was recounting about how she had to give up her dreams to have Owen and then obviously Owen turning out to be such a piece of shit um (laughs) (laughs) I've never read a book where I hated a child as much as I hated Owen what a a horrible child you're just like I'm never ever having children now cats enough that's it no more no Owens in my life ever um done but yeah (laughs) definitely that um I think creeped into there you know Mm. um as far as like afterwards i mean i think we all get a little bit stabby at times and you know we we want a little bit of revenge so i probably channeled that as well um i really liked the way that it didn't it wasn't evil it wasn't really expressed as evil even though what happened within the story had come from something evil had more of a a slant to it that instead of this evil infecting her it kind of empowered her more and i i loved that message about just just how you can take something evil and put it in a very good woman a very kind and a very sweet and serene woman and it will give her autonomy and 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 presence and and rage which you know Everybody loves those stories. It, it kind of had like promising young woman kind of vibes. And I was just like, yes. But it's really difficult not to root for Casey through this entire book. And I, Even though she does horrible things. Yeah. Because everyone <laughs> she does them to deserves it. You write bad characters so wonderfully. I hated every single one of them. Even the child. Even the child. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's, it's one of my life goals to um, make people like hate that I made them root for Casey in that instance you know yeah and I mean I I liked her before and I think a lot of your sort of your medical knowledge and stuff kind of came in before the transplant talking about the LVAD and talking about what she'd had to go through to get on the list and all those really really interesting things about transplantation science and all the, the sort of medical terminology you can tell that you're very very like seasoned medical professional I really really liked that but I also loved when it switched to sort of a bit supernatural and she was like, Hmm, there's a voice inside and (laughs) just letting that sort of progress and, and to shape her character. Did you find yourself writing her voice differently after the point of like consciously uh, after the point of transplantation? Was that, was that sort of a conscious choice? Cause I noticed it, but I just wasn't sure if you would consciously been like, here we go. I need to Im- infect her a little bit with his voice. Yeah. Well, initially when I um, like first kind of drafts and whatnot, um, I made her more brutal, like almost too brutal to where like you didn't, you weren't really rooting for her. You're like, Jesus, like she's <laughs> kind of a psychopath. Like what the fuck? But um, I, I did kind of tone that down. Um, so Yes and no, I guess. Um, I think it, it, it did evolve more naturally once I went through like the revisions and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and um, for, for the audience listening at the moment, I would like to point out as well, there is a scene where Jack gets what's coming to him. Um, <laughs> when you've read this book, you'll understand and you will say, absolutely, you will completely agree. And yes, 100%. He deserved that every second of it, every small piece of it. He deserved... <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. I like that. Yeah, yeah they'll know. <laughs> they'll know eventually. They'll know. They, they everyone's going to read this now. So this uh, publisher that you're working with now, tell me a little bit about how you kind of got into bed with them, what the, what the process was, how your your publishing deal with, with this, this publisher came to be. Yeah, so my publisher is Finding Road Stories uh, Publications. They're based out of New York. They're fantastic. Um, my So I got a bit lucky. I guess it was like serendipity a little bit. Um, on Twitter, twice a year, they have a pitch event, Pit Dark. Yeah. So um, for those that don't know what that is, is essentially for 12 hours, you can tweet a pitch once an hour, but it has to be different each time. And if like agents or editors or whatever like your pitch, then you follow the directions and send them, you know, your manuscript or whatever yeah um so yeah i i was doing pit dark and michael dolan who's my editor and the the founder of um winding road stories liked my pitch um and i sent him the manuscript and he gave me a call and he's like so this is fucked up you want to you want to <laughs> write a book <laughs> was it finished at the time when you got the um the call had you had you done all of the sort of the personal development part that you had to get it finished at that point completed but um it i mean i definitely revamped it a significant amount with his input like you know it was in the third person i switched it to the first person yeah um you know and he directed me as to when i needed to pull back <laughs> <laughs> and when i needed to um you know go for it more more so he was like, you, you need to, you need to scale this back. This is a little bit much, but um, it's been honestly a, a dream working with yeah. them. Like they are fantastic. Yeah. I'm actually um, heading to the Brooklyn book festival this weekend. Nice. Um, yeah. To, to hang out with them. So oh, it's going awesome. to hobnob a little. Yeah. And is that on Saturday of this week? Is it? Um, Sunday. Sunday. 10 to 6. And I don't know where it's at, but I'll figure it out, like, you know, before I go there. Okay, cool. But, but before you go there, make sure you let us know, because we are putting this episode <laughs> out on Saturday, so we can let people know where they can find you if they want to go pick up a signed copy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, make sure oh, you let us know. Oh, can do. So, um, we've got your book. What about your other work? Where what, what other things have you got out there? Tell us a bit more about your your work that came before this. You said you've written some short stories as well. Are they are they out in the world? Are they are they published? Can we find them places? Yes, you can. So as far as um, short stories, I have most of them are kind of medical themed, mm -hmm. just because I mean, write what you know. Yeah. Um, one of my absolute favorites is. Um, called Continuing Education, which is in Hellbound Books, Anthology of Splatterpunk. So nice. as you can imagine, it's a bit uh, gory and grisly, but 
essentially that story follows a um, doctor who turns the tables on, you know, like sexual predators and like practices procedures and whatnot on them so she can be better as a doctor and, you know, clean up the the trash of the neighborhood and whatnot. Um, that, so that, that one is, well, then everything you can find on my website, which I'll, I'll tell you later, but, um, I also have some stories in, you know, Gore 2, a Halloween anthology. Um, one is about a haunted, abandoned NICU, which, nice. you know, those babies, as you can imagine, are pretty creepy. Yeah. Um, and then the other one was inspired by, uh, a dream act, well, nightmare that one of my best friends had, who's an ER nurse. She had this dream that she went to this like patient's home visit and realized she was dead the entire time. Well, that your friend was dead, or that the patient was dead. Oh, well, we have to read it to find mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just like, no, my curiosity is more important than that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give away too but much. Yeah, that. That one, um, and then as far as like just desserts, um, that was with Black Hair Press, based oh, in that. Australia. Yeah, yeah, they're fantastic. That's so cool. Um, do you ever do great. their drabbles when when they put the drabble calls out? A hundred. Yeah, like, I've never, I've never, never gotten one. Unfortunately, I do like drabbles though. They're they're much more difficult than yes. you expect. You are on my complete wavelength. I always say this: like Brett is obsessed with getting drabbles into Black Hair Press anthologies he does it all the time but i'm like how do you manage to do this it's so hard to have a 100 word story you're so limited by it i just i I can't understand how how people manage to get to do that so yeah it's a talent honestly yeah (laughs) but i love black hair press they are they are wonderful wonderful people yeah they're great um and that that story essentially again another woman being revenged but um it's a woman named susan who in high school was you know tormented for for speech impediment and they they play a pretty nasty prank on her that essentially almost kills her so she decides to go to her 20-year um high school reunion and exact revenge on everybody yes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. carry vibes i love it exactly yeah (laughs) totally kind of channeled that um and then my other book the only you can prevent forest fires it's it's almost a bit of a love letter from um for where i'm from in colorado um so there you know you have to worry a lot about like wildfires and things because it's constantly like drought and whatnot yeah so it's a story that follows a man who is lamenting a breakup he makes some pretty bad decisions you know starts a forest fire with like a lit joint does some lsd and then a bear uh mauls and kills him but you know (laughs) yeah yeah good so i am always curious to know particularly when it comes to like queer authors and, and female authors um do you always write your characters from sort of a lived perspective or infuse them with a, a part of your knowledge of, of how it is to exist in this world. Cause I always have this kind of thought to myself, like I, I would never try and tell a story about the lived experience of somebody who's, who's 
identity I don't understand or I've never I've never seen first person what's what's your kind of take on that so yes I I do because I, I try to write characters that you're not often going to see I guess in general media previously you know mm. like it was more cis you know white gender authors typically yeah. um but yeah, I agree. Like I'm, I've been lately when I've been writing like short stories and whatnot, I've been trying to include like more trans characters yeah. or, or people of color and, and things. But um, yeah, I think I would have a very difficult time writing from those yeah. perspectives, not knowing that. Yeah. So um, is, that, is that why you, you write sort of a lot of like very, very powerful sort of queer feminine uh, characters that that's sort of your, your expression. I did the same, not, feminine yep, characters exactly i'm very butch in case you couldn't tell yeah he has a great beard guys like i'm <laughs> I'm honestly very impressed all of the colors in this beard <laughs> <laughs> um so what's next what, what happens now i know you've only literally just released this book like a week ago <laughs> it's still <laughs> it's still really early days but like what is the plan for for what you've got coming up next so um on October 5th, I actually have another novella coming out with Alien Budapest um, nice. called It's Me. Hi, I'm the zombie. It's me. Yes. Taylor, Taylor Swift, right? <laughs> yeah. So that one is based um, on StokerCon, which took place in mm -hmm. Pittsburgh this year. And coincidentally, uh, Taylor Swift was in town the same weekend. Yeah. And like, it was hilarious because, you know, you're walking through the hotel and you see all the horror people that are, you know, like black chains, they got piercings, <laughs> you know, they look kind of. Everyone's wearing tough. a top hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or plague doctor hat and mask or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then you have these Swifties that are like in glitter and whatnot. So essentially they have to band together to fight zombies. I love that. I'm going to be yeah. looking out for that one. I didn't realize that you would have another project coming out so quickly after the last one that's that's incredibly impressive is that causing you anxiety for what you're going to write next and when, and when you're going to release the next thing or have you got something else planned in the pipeline so i don't have anything big coming out um i am working on my what i'm hoping will be my second novel which is um following a neurologist that has invented these chips to implant in people's um heads to stop migraines but oh, um could have used that this the morning side of yeah i see <laughs> the side effects though could be murder <gasps> no but yes but absolutely yes <laughs> but yeah so definitely um that's what i'm working on currently but i have been just kind of marinating on the idea of maybe a sequel to the broken heart with casey but i don't know what direction i would take it just yet i feel like there is room for it there's definitely room for it i think people yeah kind of just get sort of the little souchon is that a word i don't even know i can't speak french you get a little taste of what, good. of what casey is about in the post transplantation era in her era in her reputation era <laughs> um <laughs> and then yeah, I, I feel like there's going to be some people who are really hungry to see what happens next. And I think it could be really interesting as well, because obviously there are side effects of transplantation. Transplantation is not forever. It's a, a, a band-aid for a 
you know a, a larger problem so how that ties in with what happens that that would exactly. be very interesting very interesting i'm excited i'm excited i'm excited um <laughs> how are you so amazing how do you manage to balance doing such a high pressure job as being an er consultant and then go home and still have the energy to have a life how does she do it is what i want to ask you basically tell me how you're so good let's do this so you know uh hermione time turner i have one of those oh i thought so yeah i need that please uh, it wouldn't matter i just keep going having naps <laughs> over and over again I, I would too honestly <laughs> or i would just like keep turning it and playing video games or something just keep turning it back and then eventually you turn up to where you're supposed to go and you're like old as hell yeah <laughs> no, I did it exactly sorry 84 years um but well it, it does help obviously not to have children because yeah. you know that frees up quite a bit of time um so I work quite a few night shifts mm -hmm. um which like sometimes you'll get some downtime during a shift you know maybe an hour or two so um occasionally I will write at work, but it doesn't happen frequently. Um, I'm not one that writes like every single day. I'm, I'm more of one of those that like, Need I'll do like four hours. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, often I'll write like before a night shift um, or, you know, if I'm off and my wife like accidentally falls asleep on the couch, I'll take those moments um, or when she's at work. But yeah, I'm more of a, is it, I guess, is it a sprinter where you, just, or no, yeah, I guess yeah, it'd yeah. be marathon, whatever. <laughs> but, um, it definitely works. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Um, I'm completely in awe of the fact that you managed to keep a high pressure job and still write. I have a very low pressure job and sometimes I like to just nap the entire spare day away. So <laughs> I think it, it honestly is a bit of like a therapy though, too. You know what I mean? Like, I think yeah. it like helps. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's um there's an absolute catharsis in writing, particularly when we're writing horror, because it kind of uh gets out the boohoos, I guess. Like Exactly. Yeah, anything that's bothering you. And I can imagine, particularly with the political climate and everything that's happening in America, to be able to have that sort of outlet to vent, particularly on unworthy and cunty men is, <laughs> is, is quite a good outlet for you. Tell me where we can find your work online um your website you said about earlier tell me where we can find you are you on I, I refuse to call it x but twitter are you tiktoking do you tiktok i'm not tiktoking because i if i tiktok i would like lose control of my life mm -hmm. you know like I, I i just know me <laughs> yeah. yeah like I, it's like i watch why i didn't download pokemon go because like i would 100 percent walk into the street and get hit by a semi or something <laughs> and now where can we find you online you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Spooky underscore ER. And my personal website is njgallegos.com. And Gallegos is G-A-L-L-E-G-O-S. And there you can find all of, you know, links to all of my works, plus a link to my vocal media platform where you can read free fucked up short stories. Nice. And, um, other links on your website as well too where they can buy all of your work as well like the the, the new book and, and the ones coming up and everything's it's, it's updated yeah 
Yeah, yeah. And and um, on my website, I have three standalone short stories related to the broken heart um, <sighs> regarding some of the other organs from the serial killer. No. Lungs? <laughs> no. Corneas. No. Oh, my God. You've done corneas, right? Yeah, I did do oh. corneas. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, I'm not going to spoil it anymore, but I am going to go there immediately after I hang up from you. Um, <laughs> uh, anything <laughs> else that you want to plug while we're, while we're, while we're live, while we're live? Um, you know, just, yeah, on October 5th, um, you know, pick up. It's me. Hi, I'm the zombie. It's me. Um, tag Taylor Swift. So she becomes my best friend and, and then- um, yeah. Yeah. And we can all just hang out mm-hmm. and, um, stay and neuter your pets um fuck maga um yeah 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 and and just men stop being gross let's just do yeah, that one as on. well don't be a jack or else you'll know what happens um <laughs> yep okay so i have been charged by chelsea to ask the final question what would you title your memoir if you wrote it today I'm sorry. I thought it was a funny joke. My bad. <laughs> Is that the uh, apology from cancellation? <laughs> right. Mine's just like, I didn't say the F word in public. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say cunt again, did I? <laughs> was that a good English accent or no? It was very good. You could play Oliver on Broadway. It would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's been an absolute joy to speak to you and i wish this release the best of luck and it's me hi i'm the zombie it's me um <laughs> equal amazing just wonderful things for you um we love alien buddha breast here so just congratulations and 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 thank you for, for being here i'm rubbish at endings i don't want it to end <laughs> and that's all we've got time for today um thank you to all of our guests for um putting up with us especially chelsea because she's awful um we will link everything that we've talked about today underneath we will have links to all the books and all of the people that we've spoken to um we'll see you again next month where we're going to have another four person orgy of awesome um but we are the cutthroat queens and you are welcome Got a little piece to take away Yeah, you took that away